Last week, we saw Saul of Tarsus, a.k.a. Apostle Paul, in his early days of a conversion and call in the city of Damascus. During his three years in Damascus, Saul also went to Arabia to reflect and rededicate himself as a zealous prophet Elijah recorrect his, uh, his, his, uh, his understanding of God in the past. Today we find Paul, or Saul, moving back home in his late 20s. So let's find out how this happened in Acts chapter 9, verse 24 to 31. So Acts chapter 9, <clears throat> verse 24. But Saul learned of their plan, and day and night, they kept close watch on the city gate in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, by the way, from Damascus, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was the disciple. This shows, by the way, how much terror Saul of Tarsus before caused to the Christians in some, uh, Judea, in, in Palestine. Now, verse 27, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Here we find uh, a, a minor character uh, with a, of a major contribution. Yes, that's a Barnabas. Uh, Barnabas risked his life to introduce all to the disciples. You know, it starts with a but. Uh, that means it contrasting the Barnabas' faith and trust against the fear and doubt of other followers or disciples of Christ. So last time we saw Barnabas, uh, last time, by the way, Barnabas saw Saul in Jerusalem was when he was killing his friend Stephen and many other Christians. Yet, three years later, Barnabas courageously met Saul, and I bet he interviewed him thoroughly and found this story true. Now, so continuing, so, uh, so but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. So he told the apostles how Saul in his journey has seen the Lord and the Lord has spoken to him and how in Damascus he preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with a Hellenistic Jew. Do you remember the Jews who grew up in the outside of Palestine, like Saul, whose mother tongue is a Greek, not a Aramaic or Hebrew? But they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down, Saul, down to the Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Notice now that here, Saul's absence means the peace and growth of the churches in Palestine. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, Samaria, that means the entire Palestine, enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Now, wherever Saul went, there seemed to develop a pattern. He preached the gospel fearlessly, and he was persecuted to the point of death. Saul was becoming another Stephen, almost. First in Damascus, 
now in Jerusalem. The only safe place that the Jerusalem apostles could think of for Saul was his hometown. There, they thought he must have his families and friends and kinsmen who would protect him. So they sent Saul to Tarsus. And here, Saul spent a significant amount of time. So, now let me show you the map. Do you see the Jerusalem down there? And uh, do you see Damascus? That's where he went to uh, persecute the Christians. And that's on the way somewhere he met Christ. And then, well, only thing that I don't like about Mab is that, uh, you know, his uh, detour or his uh, intentional trip to Arabia was a very... It's, it all, he went all the way to uh, Sinai, came back in Jerusalem. Now, they sent him to Caesarea. Caesarea is uh, today's uh, Tel Aviv. Actually, Caesarea was the largest city in Palestine at the time because it's a seaport. And there, they shipped him, literally, to Tarsus. Now, let us pause for a moment and think. Look at me. The son who was destined for greatness, the pride of family, who was educated in the finest schools in Tarsus, and Jerusalem, moved back into his parents' home. Last time, the family sent him away. He was going to be a student under Gamaliel, the greatest rabbi at the time. In every, you know, uh, everything, in the, every indication, gives them a, a hope that a uh, Saul will be another Gamaliel. Probably can succeed a Gamaliel. And now, guess what? He's back home. Dropping off the, whatever, the graduate school, PhD program, or whatever, you know, the education and training from school of Gamaliel. How many young adults today can relate to this story? Saul's return must have caused confusion and disappointment for his parents and possibly for himself. It reminds me of an old movie, some of you remember now. Um, uh, is, do you guys remember the movie called the Failure, to, Failure to Lunch? Failure to Lunch? Okay. Well, that tells your age, but anyway. We don't know exactly how long Saul lived there. But in Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, this is what Saul said. After 14 years later, uh, 14 years, went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. Now, there is some confusion as to uh, when the 14 years started, whether or not it included Saul's first missionary journey or not. But at least it appeared that Saul lived in Tarsus for 10 years after his conversion, after he returned from Damascus and Jerusalem. So let me give you a, a, a chronological outline of a Saul in his early days that many Pauline scholars you know, concur. So we, they, we believe that Jesus was crucified around the AD, AD or common era uh, 30. And then a couple years later, 
32, uh, Stephen was a, a martyr, and then Saul's persecution started, and then Saul met Christ sometime in AD 32, and then, I mean 33, and then next three years he spent time in Damascus, and then 36, he returned to Jerusalem, and this is when everyone was afraid to meet him, and Barnabas took him to apostles. And then Saul's life was once again threatened that they sent him back to Tarsus. And so Saul was back in his hometown Tarsus upper about 36 to 46. And then Barnabas came back for Saul. The story we'll, talk, we'll see later. And then Saul visited uh, Jerusalem. So that's the kind of timeline. Now, during this time, Saul likely used Tarsus as his home base, reaching out to other Jews as synagogues in the region of Cilicia and even Syria, talking about Christ. And note here, Paul's been told by the Lord at his conversion that he had an important mission to fulfill. Yet, at least for 10 years, Paul lived in Tarsus, in his parents' home. So the big question we have is that why did God keep Saul in Tarsus for a long time? 10 years. Do you remember 10 years that uh, you, know, you spent the 10 years of your adult life somewhere? Especially somewhere that you didn't plan? Um, one thing I can say about the return of, uh, I mean, going home, homecoming after college is that, you know, after college, you feel that uh, I actually, I felt home is no longer home to me. Strange thing is that during the college, every time I went home, I felt like, ah, I'm back home, yes. You know, I'm going to kick out and I rest. But right after graduation, I felt like, uh, oh, this is not my home. I suppose made my home by now. Now, God intentionally kept Saul in Tarsus for a decade. Our New Testament scholars called it a silent decade of Paul. And I believe this silent decade of Paul was a formidable year for Paul. This is what I call the today's uh, title, today's sermon, that uh, uh, Bamak of a Faith, Part 2. Do you guys remember Bamak? You know, tip of, uh, there is a tip of iceberg, and uh, underneath the iceberg, there is an invisible part called Bamak, the foundation, formation of a faith. So what, what did a soul or Paul gain or experience during this long time at home? Three things must have happened here. And that's the three things we're going to reflect today. So number one, he honed or acquired the trade skill, trade skill. And number two, theological reflection and spiritual experience. Theological reflect, uh, reflection and spiritual experience. And number three is a terrible anguish, terrible anguish for the gospel. So let's look at the first one. First, when Saul returned to his home, you know, he's, he's, he already educated there before. 
he went to Jerusalem to study. So he's back in home, and he began to attend his family business, which was tent making. And at the introduction, I told you that Tarsus was well known for tent making business. And uh, most Jewish rabbis back then did not expect to make a living from their teaching. They didn't get paid. The, uh, some famous rabbis like Hillel or Gamaliel, they were financially supported by their students or benefactors or patrons or families of uh, their students. Most rabbis, they just live just like any other you know, Jewish person. So, it's, so being a rabbi in the first century is not like a today's a clergy. So, and the Saul, especially, he's a strange new type of a Jewish rabbi. He would never suppose that the going, or, uh, going about announcing the crucified Jesus as Israel's Messiah and the Savior of the world would earn him a living. So Paul has to find a way to make a living. And naturally, his family was the uh, uh, in was in tent making business. So he also involved in tent making business. So instead of this theological graduate school or PhD pr program, guess what? Paul now is a learning trade skill. He's a honing uh, craftsmanship of a, of a tent making and I, we must recognize his craft is a hard physical labor. And if you look at the uh, subsequent uh, Paul's letters, shows that uh, Paul actually took the pride in supporting himself by manual work. In uh, Acts chapter 18, uh, because, said this, When Paul left Athens, went to Corinth, there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus who recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Emperor Claudius kicked them, kicked all the Jews to leave the Rome. And Saul went to see them because he was tent maker as they were, and he stayed and worked with them. So in Corinth, Paul self-supported himself uh, by working at the Priscilla and Aquila's tent-making business together. They were business associates. And guess what? Priscilla, Aquila, they became, they received Christ through Paul into their heart. And then they became a faithful companion and of a soul. Later, they, when Paul left Corinth, they followed Paul all the way to Ephesus. And we know they even returned to Rome and the Church of Rome was founded in Priscilla and Aquila's home. It was a Paul's tent-making skill that connected him with the other tent-makers, and that's where he shared the gospel. Again, later in Acts chapter 20, verse 33, Paul said this, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing for my uh, uh, living. You yourself know that this hand of mine have supplied my own needs and needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of a hard work, we must, help the, uh, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So Paul said, through his hard work of tent making, he supported himself, not only that, he helped the poor. 
You know, when people uh, in churches today discuss Paul and his theology or letters, we often think that uh, Paul as a man of ideas who dealt with a lofty and difficult concept. You know, so we can imagine the world of libraries and seminar rooms at least, you know, ministers in a study for quiet sermon preparation. You know, if, have you looked at the, the, uh, the graphic of uh, our uh, sermon series on Paul, the Pastor Paul story? You know, one thing I don't like about that graphic, even though I picked that graphic, is that it uh, seems like uh, he's in the quiet library writing his uh, sermons uh, or letters. You know, Paul was constantly moving, and many of his uh, letters were written in prison. And also, he didn't write. He dictated and somebody else wrote it. So, please, know that that picture was a painting, famous painting, was a, a, a drawn years later. And so, don't be deceived by the painting. Paul didn't live this uh, ivory tower, tranquil life. So, we easily forget the author of this letter spent most of his waking hours and with his sleeves rolled up and doing hard physical labor in a hot climate and perhaps two-thirds of a conversation took place in this kind of actual working environment. So Saul, as somebody says, Saul had his feet on the ground, his hands were hardened with the labor, yet his head still buzzed with the scripture and the news about Jesus. And his heart was a zealous, loyal to the one God who loved him and, and forgave him, even though he ignorantly persecuted his followers. Now, I believe that Paul's manual labor or trade skill was a more than practical skill or portable trade. But actually, it implies a spiritual wisdom and principle. And here this is. Spiritual life requires physical disciplines. Yes, spiritual life requires physical disciplines. You know, to Christians, spiritual life is not a bodiless, pure cognitive, you know, intellectual stuff. Or some, you know, say even docetic spirituality some kind of a, a non-physical spirituality. That is a truly not a biblical spirituality. Biblical spirituality, spiritual life, is an embodied, embodied spirituality because we are in flesh to soul. We are not just a soul. We are soul in flesh. Look at the heroes of the Bible. They are physically active. Look at the father of faith, Abraham. What was his job? He was a shepherd, and his children, and his grandchildren, Isaac and Jacob, they were all shepherds. Israelites were shepherds at the land of Goshen in, in Egypt. Moses, later, when he tried to you know, serve God, guess what? God took him from this ivory tower of, uh, I mean, ivory tower or Ivy League education of Egypt and sent him to Median Desert. And there, he learned to be a shepherd for 40 years. Moses did a labor, I mean manual labor for 40 years before God called him at the burning bush. What about David? 
David was a military guy. He was a warrior and shepherd and warrior. All this, they are physically active people. And most of all, look at our Lord Jesus. He was a carpenter for most, of, most part of his life. Much longer than his public ministry. And when he began to preach, people said in Matthew 13, said that, isn't this a carpenter's son? That means, isn't the carpenter we know? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And his brother James, Joseph, and Simon Judas that we know. All the biblical spiritual giant, they are physically active. And this is why Christian monastery movement, monastic movement, they had a one principle. That is, manual labor and prayer go together. So when you join the mo uh, monastery during the medieval time, guess what? You start the day with a prayer and then breakfast and then you go to another prayer? No, you go to the field and you do the labor, either farming or making craftsmanship or something. They constantly you know, had an interval of a labor and prayer. Labor and prayer. I think this rhythm of a spiritual life is very important to us. You know, Immanuel Kant, the so-called father of modern philosophy of epistemology, you know, he was known for one thing. That is, it's a precise daily walking. So German you know, farmers in his town in 18th century, they knew what time of day was by looking at the Immanuel Kant walking. And I believe that's why his brain was so sharp. So, dear brothers and sisters, I don't know about your experience of this pandemic. Now we are about to end so-called you know, pandemic and returning to our uh, normal, uh, uh, normal life patterns in the past, whether work or church or whatever, social life. You know, I hope Whatever physical discipline that you developed, I hope you take it with you. You know, one of the great, I say that one of the great blessings in disguise, blessing that I didn't expect from the pandemic, is that of walking. Yes. I'm, I don't want to brag, but uh, do you know I walk more than 10,000 steps, you know, since the pandemic? I mean, I did a different exercise before, but, you know, in, some of you know that I'm a world-class uh, stationary bike rider, but I still do bike, uh, a stationary bike from time to time, but walking in the outside, that really helps me to focus on God. It really, I mean, more, it helps me many things, but more than anything, my spiritual life will not go back to olden days. I'm, a, I'm going to walk, not by faith alone, but with my feet for Christ. Because of walking, you know, when I, I have to confess, just like many of you, sometimes I cannot pray during this pandemic. Not much comes out of it. Even Jesus' prayer doesn't do, you know, I cannot do them more than, you know, 20, 30 minutes. And times like that, I just put on my sneakers and get out. I walk. I walk. Listen to the Christian music. 
and then you know try to focus on God. And guess what? Walking outside, looking at the you know trees and birds and the you know grass, that really refreshed me about the presence of God in the world and in my life again. So I pray that we take a physical discipline seriously. Now, second thing that we can be sure of a Paul Silent uh, uh, decade is that he prayed and he's continued to study and tried to figure out all sorts of the things. He continued to reflect on God's revelation in Jesus Christ. For everything we know of Saul of Tarsus or Paul the Apostle, we cannot imagine in early days he stopped thinking through. I bet he's, you know, he's soaking about uh, himself with Israel's scripture, like many other devout you know, uh, 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 Jews in his time. And he searched, he says, you know, Jewish scripture for where he missed it. And he's sort of going backward with the new fact about resurrection of Jesus. And there, he is engaging seriously with the scripture, with the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he began to see this, you know, God has God started something new, something big. All the hopes of Israel, all the promises given by the prophets are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is where Paul's theology in Christ is being developed. I bet Paul reread Exodus. He read the entire Torah in the light of Christ and prophets, and especially the book of Isaiah, and the while praying on Psalms. Now, one major difference in Paul's theological reflection at home is this. He was doing in the city of Tarsus, in the region of Cilicia. This is where Saul naturally saw Gentiles more than Jews. Back in Jerusalem and Judea, Saul's conversation partners were Jews. Now Saul began to see Gentiles more than anybody else, and now he sees Gentiles differently than before, because Jesus told Saul through Ananias that Saul supposed to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. So I bet to Saul, Gentiles is no longer so-called dogs. as the Jewish people called. And we know that Tarsus was a very robust, cosmopolitan, Gentile city of half million population. So looking at the Gentiles and then now hearing what they're talking about, he's listening to them more intently. You know, so Saul is really engaging, not just with the Jewish scripture with the reality of Jesus, but also engaging his own culture. There's a Gentile culture, pagan culture, with the you know, good news of Jesus Christ. And I have to add one more thing. During this time, many Pauline scholars believe that something special happened to Paul. Do you know what happened to the Paul? Look at the Second Corinthians chapter 12. Paul said, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was cut up to the third heaven. Whether it was a body or not, or out of the body, I do not know. Only God knows. But I know this man, whether in the body or apart from body, I do not know. But God knows, was cut up to the paradise, 
heard the inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weakness. Those of you who listened to my uh, sermon in the second Corinthians, you got the full, uh, last year, get the full picture. But Paul had a very sp special spiritual experience. You know, this, uh, ten, this silent decade of Paul, that doesn't mean Paul was uh, lazy during this year. He was busy in his theological reflection, and I bet he even preaching to the gospel, preaching uh, gospel to the Gentiles. And that some Pauline scholars think that Paul's actually active ministry back home could probably spread all the way to Antiochus. Antiochus. That's where the uh, uh, Barnabas heard of uh, you know Saul, Saul's presence, remember Saul, and then came back to you know recruit him again. But that is a speculation. But important thing is this: you know God would not reveal Himself to somebody who is not who is a lazy, who is not praying. Saul was active in his uh, theological reflection, re-engaging everything, scripture, his experience and culture in the reality of Jesus Christ and his call. And there, guess what? God gave him even temporary rapture experience. He went to the third heaven. He kept it private until 14 years later, when he ministering a Corinthian church and the many Corinthian people were bragging about their whatever superficial spiritual experience, Paul said, you know what? I have a bigger than yours. Mine is a bigger than yours, but I'm not going to talk about that because the most important thing is my experience, but who my experience is more, experience, more important than what I experience. And Jesus Christ in your heart it's a far more important you being in the third heaven. That's what I, you know. And the Jesus is in us when we recognize our weakness. The more I recognize my weakness, the more I rely on Jesus that I'm going to, you know, that I'm going to boast. That's what Paul is talking, uh, speaking in 2 Corinthians. So Paul at home, he continued to reflect on the scripture, re-engage in his culture, in light of his calling, what about us? I'm so glad the uh, Sean prayer, you know, in a way uh, implies a reflection, theological reflection of what, what was going on in our time. Do you know there is, uh, just a, a few weeks ago, in Christianity Today, there was a special article about silent exodus of many young people from evangelical churches. We're not talking about just accidental dropout. We're talking about significant you know, a loss of you know, young people from evangelical churches in America. Some of them say, I know evangelical, I grew up in evangelical churches, but I don't know who evangelicals are today. They're disillusioned and confused about evangelicals, you know, stand, political stance and their ethical attitude toward all these social, political, economic struggles in our country. So many of them are disillusioned and they left the church. This is a time for us to seriously re-engage in the scripture. 
all the Christian nations struggle, such as the uh, uh, German Lutheran churches uh, lapse into Nazism. This is not accidental. This is all came out of lack of understanding the scripture correctly. So this is not a time for us to take a vacation from you know, studying. This is a time for us a rigorous reflection on the, the, the gospel and the God's words. And for us, you have no excuse because we have a Bible study after Bible study that carefully crafted. And so hopefully during the summer, everyone take a class. Again, as a pastor, I challenge you. You cannot grow spiritually automatically unless you feed yourself with the word of God. Let me move on quickly. The third thought on Paul's silent ears. That is something very personal and difficult. We have, that is that I say the terrible anguish of a soul winner. Paul, the third and final thing that Paul experienced in his silent decade is a, he's a terrible anguish of a soul winner. You know, imagine Paul has gone back to his family. And we know about one thing about Saul after his conversion. He began to preach the gospel or about the reason Christ fearlessly. With a, now with the reflection and the confirmation with the scripture, I bet he preached his family that Jesus Christ is a God's Messiah. And he proved it through the crucifixion and resurrection and the appearance to the Paul. But all the external evidences tell us Paul's family's response to his preaching was not great. Number one, fact number one, there was a no church mentioned in the city of Tarsus. Saul, who planted the church everywhere in the region of Cilicia, didn't plant a church. He think, you think he didn't? Or he tried and couldn't? If Paul tried to preach the gospel with the strangers, or even Gentiles, don't you think that he really wanted to share his gospel with his own family? But their response was not that great. On this note, I want to go to another important fact, uh, another important aspect of Paul's life. Everyone who reads Paul asked this question sooner or later. That is, was there a girl? Had he been uh, uh, betrothed or even married? What was a Paul's you know, uh, marriage status? And we know that when Paul wrote, uh, Paul later, when he wrote about marriage, he said in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, chapter 7, he said, he would be happy to see everyone in the same situation as himself. And to unmarried people and to widows, Paul said, I have this to say, it is perfectly all right for you to remain like me. Why did he put it like this? You know, you have to remember that Paul was writing at a time when remaining unmarried, particularly for women, was next to scandalous. 
Next, scandalous. Dominant cultural assumption back then was an unmarried adult, particularly woman, was a social and a moral disaster waiting to happen and a social disgrace to, his family, to her family. Paul, as we'll see, was challenging the dominant culture with a new sub new creation, and the new creation means a new different values. So Paul said, it is perfectly okay, actually even better, for you to stay single and serve the Lord. Not just, you know, singlehood is great. He said, serving the Lord with all of your devotion, including celibacy, that's the way to go, just as I did. Now, that left uh, many Pauline uh, scholars uh, questions about Paul's you know, marital status. And there are four uh, uh, speculations. One, he never married. Number two, his wife died early. So he, he, was, he became a, uh, because many people died early back then. So he chose not to get married. So he was, you know, widow, widower. Number three, his wife decided to break off marriage. So he was divorced because of his faith. Or number four is that uh, anti-rice view. And, uh, you know, that is Paul was betrothed because he's uh, late 20s when he returned home. And, uh, but his fiance and her parents had broken off the engagement when they found out this young soul returned home with his head and heart full of a horrible nonsense about the, about the crucified Nazarene carpenter. So they broke home. So, now I want to say this. Saul back home in Tarsus, I, the deepest heartbreak, I believe, was not the loss of an actual or potential spouse, though that is always hard for anybody. What grieved him most was the loss of a many who were very close to him, had known him from the boyhood, and still loved him dearly. But they would not receive the witness of Jesus Christ. You know, by end of uh, uh, end of uh, by end of uh, his life at the Tarsus, Saul worked at a, a considerable detail what it means to what it means that the one that God revealed Himself in and uh, as of the crucified and risen Christ. To Paul, the unbelieving Jews was not a simply a theological category. These are real human beings. And Paul has a deep anguish about them. Let's look at the Romans 9. Romans 9, Paul said this, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms me through the Holy Spirit. I have a great sorrow. The word great is a mega, mega sorrow, mega lupe. Unceasing anguish. Here, unceasing means a constant uh, emotional, intense pain in my heart. For I could wish I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. So here we see the root of Paul's ongoing grief. 
in his heart. That is, his flesh and blood relatives. People over whom Paul was agonizing with a great sorrow and endless pain in his heart are not generalized masses of unbelieving Jews. Paul knew their names. Paul sees their faces and their sorrowful head shaking. When Paul talks about anguish, he's talking about his mother, his father, his brother, his sister, his nephews, and his, who knows how many, his close friends, childhood friends. You know, love and grief are very close. And Saul was confessing, I'd rather be cursed. If they could be saved, I'd rather go to hell. If they could find themselves in Christ, I will go to hell. If that it takes, I will go to hell. That's what Paul was saying. Here. And I believe this a terrible anguish of for the lost souls is the most important quality of a soul winners and the New Testament Christians. Let me repeat that. The most important quality of a New Testament biblical Christian followers of Jesus Christ is a terrible anguish for the lost soul. You know, Charles Spurgeon, a great you know, a, a, a preacher in England, once said that the happiest people on earth were the soul winners. For when they saw a new spiritual birth, they experienced the taste of a new heaven and new earth. So he said, when you a soul winner. And then when you see somebody coming to Christ, you experience a new heaven and earth. You taste, you savor, you taste a little bit of a new heaven and earth. But Charles Spurgeon also said this about the heart of soul winner. Now you look at the quote. Reckon then to acquire soul winning power, you will have to go through the mental torment and soul distress. You must go into the fire if you are going to pull others out of it. You will have to dive into the flood if you are going to draw others out of the water. You cannot work a fire escape without feeling the scorch of a conflagration, nor a man in lifeboat without being covered with the waves. We cannot share the gospel without sharing the anguish, anguish of the lost people. That Christ goes through. So in a way, sharing gospel is not just uh, you know uh, talking about Jesus or you know talking about you know four spiritual laws. It's more than that. There's a deep anguish in our heart. As a, a Keith Green, a great American songwriter and a Christian, once said. This generation Christians is responsible for this generation souls on the earth. And Kiss Green once said this too. I want no Christmas without burden for the lost souls. I don't want a, a message for you know, Christmas without a message for sinners or hard to bring the lost sheep so dear to the shepherd, the sinning soul for whom Christ died. So, before we return in person, let me ask you this question. Why do we want in-person fellowship as house church and in worship? I don't want to just go back to where, where we were before. 
I want us to go back with this rededication. One thing that we, I love about the in-person you know, house church and the Sunday worship is that now I can invite the VIPs and the MIAs and encourage them in person. That's why I'm all for this reopening. Otherwise, you know, actually, virtual worship is very convenient. I don't know about you. It, it serves me well. You know, I just, uh, you know, take shower out before the Sunday worship. And then, wow, you know. But why do we go back? Why do we long for go back? Just to have a Sunday church lunch together again? More than that. It's more than just, you know, seeing each other in person. In person, all the, early at the beginning of the worship, uh, John Stockton and Daniel Clark are talking about returning to the work in person and they're talking about importance of a side talks, small talks in the workplace because a lot of times important things happen in the face-to-face -face side talks. Let me conclude this. Today's at the end Saul had to leave a home for good. But before he left the home, he really tried to share the gospel with his family and he experienced this anguished, this torture almost in his heart, in his soul for the lost. And every time he preached the gospel with a fresh pain in his heart for his family, he preached. And that's why I believe Paul's preaching was a powerful and effective. It is not just a cognitive, intellectual, theological. It is coming out of a heart of an anguished soul winner. So let me ask you this question. Are you anguished for the lost soul? Do you recognize that you are the only, you are the, you are the one of the critical link to the lost soul in your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, wherever? So before we return home, let us remember, that's what Christ called us. You know, our God's call for us, for our family, is to make our biological family, spiritual family. So those of you who have a VIP setting family, I really encourage you to continue to pray. Claim the promise of, you know, Jesus, actually, promise of Paul that that gave to the Philippian jail, they believe in Jesus as the Lord, and you and your household will be saved. I pray for my father for 31 years, and he received Christ. In a few years before he died of cancer. So continue to pray. I know it is a long battle, but as a Christ never gave up on us on the cross, we pray to the end. There are so many great pastors I cannot name, all of them, who pray for their children and their parents. And God answered many of their prayers. So don't give up hope on your children or your parents and brothers. And also the, those who are Christian parents, let us make our children more than just our children, but the children of God and followers of Jesus Christ. Until that is done, we are not ready to send them to the college or to the world. Let's pray.